Tonight's scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it joy, all my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own he will be brought forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening. I'm Pastor Brooks. We're starting a new series tonight in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, either open the old-fashioned copy that you have to flip the pages or your app, whichever, James chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. Before we get to the text, before we get to the text, I want to start with, with a couple basic questions. The first one is, do you have faith? Now that's rhetorical. Because you do have faith, might not necessarily be in Jesus. You might have not have the historical faith that James is writing about. But everybody believes in something. Everybody believes in something. The question is, what is your faith actually in? Now, probably, likely, if you're here tonight worshiping, uh, you have a faith in the historical person of Jesus Christ, who was the incarnate Son of God, is the incarnate Son of God, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified, was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and then three days later he rose again, conquering sin and death. So most of you probably have that historical faith, or you're moving in that direction, or you're moving in that direction, or you certainly were brought up in a faith tradition that holds to those historical truths. So that's probably what most of your faith is in. But the question that I want to focus on tonight that James is going to help us understand throughout the rest of this series is this. What is your faith actually securing? 
I I want you to think about that. Answer that question silent in your head. So you have this faith in this historical Jesus, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. To what end for you personally? I mean, what, what difference does it make? Or what difference is it going to make? Um, I'm, I guess, a fan of bumper stickers. Maybe a fan is a strong word. I pay attention to them to the degree that if I can't read what is on the back of someone's bumper, I'll speed up so I can get close enough to read it. And then I've actually had the experience where you get close enough to read it and says, if you're close enough to read this, you need to back off. You're too close. So I pay attention to bumper stickers. Yesterday, I saw one. Uh, we moved. Some of you helped uh, my daughter and Stephen move into Davenport as they, he starts PA school tomorrow. And, and I drove up. I had to meet the family there because I had a different uh, engagement across the state. And I met them. So I was driving by myself, and I came up behind this car and it said, I love meth. Who knew? Great. Oh, that's, a, that's a first for me. So bumper stickers are a way that people express their deepest longings and what they believe. And I thought, well, super, super. I mean, if that's what you love, let the whole world know. Let the whole world know. And so people have all sorts of bumper stickers. Now, that I love meth has nothing to do with where we're going in this sermon, fortunately. But the next bumper sticker does. I've seen this on cars. I've seen it on Facebook memes. My sister, who was not a Christian at the time, had it on a folder that she carried around in school when she was in eighth grade. Because she was part of a little group that loved Jesus, whatever that meant to an eighth grader. But she clearly didn't. But that's for another, another sermon, a different time. So Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now think about that. Don't comment on it, but think about it. Now some of you are like, I have that on my car and I know he's just going to destroy the idea of what that says and I'm embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed because there's something very valuable the, the intent of that is, is what? The intent of that is to communicate to the world that thinks that you think you're better than them because you are seeking holiness. It's to convey, no, 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 no. I am not different than you in the sense that I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. So the idea behind that, the good intent is to let people know, no, 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 I don't think I'm better than you. In fact, I'm a sinner. And I need the forgiveness of Christ. I'm so imperfect that I need Jesus maybe more than you do. So that's, the, that's, that's, that's what's good about this. But what's the problem with this? It's the word just. The word, see, words have meanings. And that's why bumper sticker Christianity or Twitter Christianity is a bad idea. To convey something in, in, in such a few amount of characters, which is so deep, is impossible. So to say, I'm a Christ, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. The word just means simply, exactly, or only. Are you just forgiven if you're in Christ? What it, what is, to what end, what, what is your faith leading you to? Is it just a pardon? I Honestly, I think James is writing to Christians who have kind of slipped into the idea that a historical faith in Jesus gets them a pardon, but then there's nothing else. There's nothing else. We had lunch with some 
some, some good friends and they, they have grandkids and the grandkids are I think five and three and they went to their five-year-old grandson's t-ball party. How many of you played t-ball growing up as a kid? Most of you or how many of you have kids? Have you seen t-ball? It's just a fiasco. It's, you get a bunch of five-year-olds uh, out on a ball diamond, you put that little ball on the tee and so, and the little guy or little girl hits the ball and what does the entire infield do once the ball's in play? All of them run to the ball. I mean, and I mean all of them. And then they fight to get the ball. They fight to get the ball. And then once they get the ball, and Caitlin's not here, so I'll share this with her. And when she was playing t-ball, she was one of those infielders, and the whole, it's, it's like a rugby scrum. The whole rugby scrum descends on the ball, and they're all fighting for the ball. And Caitlin comes up, she goes, Mom, I got it! So now, She's saying, Mom, I got it. To her, that's the sum purpose of t-ball, is to get the ball. Now, what's the coach yelling furiously? Throw it to first, right? So this is, this is t-ball Christianity right here. T-ball Christianity is, I've got Jesus. I've secured my pardon. And James is like, throw it to first. You do something. Do something with the ball. It's the, you're, you're not finished. You've just entered. So this is what we're going to do throughout the, the summer. We're going to take a look at James, the coach, from the dugout saying, do something now. Our faith ought to do more than just secure a pardon. And thank Jesus it does. But that's just a part of what it means to be a believer and to be a follower of Christ. So tonight we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. We're going to look at the outcome of our faith, which James is going to tell us in the first four verses. We're going to take a, a look at what we need to move towards that outcome. And then we're going to take a look at the object of our faith, which is where we secure what we need. So that's what we're going to take a look at. The outcome, the need, and the object of faith. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to guide us into truth. Father, we come to you because we desperately need you. First of all, we want to thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to be a substitute for our sins, to be an atoning sacrifice. And we are grateful for the fact that you, through your offering and your sacrifice and your conquering sin and death, you offer a pardon, but you offer so much more. Lord, would you show us from your word what you have saved us to become? Not just saved us from, but what you've saved us to become as we start this series in James. Would you, would you penetrate our hearts, starting with my own, Lord, help me to preach and teach in such a way that Christ is glorified and that we, Lord, experience the good and the blessings that you want us to experience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's take a look at the text. James, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greeting. So that's the greeting. The, 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 the book here, most scholars, most church historians agree that this is James, the half-brother of Christ, uh, the son of Joseph and Mary. That's, that's who's writing. Now, James was not always a believer in his big brother. John chapter 7, verse 5, John explicitly records that his brothers, his family, did not believe in him. So James is not a fan of all the things that, ja that Jesus is saying. I mean, think about this. Your brother, how many of you have siblings? Okay. Let's say that one of your siblings 
in a public forum starts telling people that their sins are forgiven on the basis of his authority. Or just the I am the son of God. Do we even need to go on and say that my body is real food and my flesh is real drink? I mean, if your sibling was saying those things, you would rightly conclude that they're, they're delusional. And this is what James believed. James, James is like, where does he get off calling himself the son of God? He did not believe until we see in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, when, when, when Paul is writing the church in Corinth, he says, what I received as of first importance, I passed on to you. That is, that Christ was crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose again. He appeared to the women. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500 in, in, at the same time. And he appeared to James. And then he appeared to me as one who was abnormally born. So that's the moment. That's the turning point for James James, the brother of Jesus, when he becomes not only the little brother of Jesus, but a follower of Jesus. Now you can read in the first part of Acts that James is recognized as a leader in the new blossoming church in Jerusalem. So day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, 2,000 are saved. And then there are 4,000 saved. So the church is exploding in Jerusalem. All of these Jews from all over the, the nations are there for Pentecost. They get saved and they don't leave. They have a huge Jewish Christian population in Jerusalem. Now, Stephen, the first martyr, is killed and the persecution of the church begins. And Acts records that at that time, these Jewish Christians scattered. That's the dispersion that James is writing to. He was their pastor. He was their mentor. He was their discipler along with the rest of the apostles. And so he is writing to these Christians who once were in Jerusalem and they've scattered to the winds. So that's the context. Now, what does he write them? He says, count it all joy. He gives us two commands. We are also a part of the, the recipients here. So it's not just these ancient Christians. It's modern Christians too. He gives us two commands. One to count something and the other is to let something happen. So what do we count and what do we let happen? First of all, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, to count means to take something into consideration, to grab a hold of it intellectually, to, to, to consider it. He says, I want you to think about this. I want you to consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. What, what are we supposed to consider all joy? What's the text say? When you meet trials of various kinds. Now the word trials here, it, it means testing. Something is being tested. Our faith is being tested. This testing, this testing of our faith, it produces steadfastness. Now the word steadfastness, it means endurance. It produces in us the ability to stand firm and not move. To, to take something, to get through something. Now, these trials, by implication, are, are all kinds of trials, various kinds. And by the text, you can, you can kind of surmise that these are not necessarily pleasant. And James is saying, count it all joy. This sounds similar to what Paul says in, in the, to the church in Philippi. Uh, rejoice. Rejoice when you meet trials of various kinds. 
What is all this rejoicing and considering joy in the midst of pain? How many of you have told, had someone, when you're in pain, tell, tell you, they, it's, it's like they didn't want you to be in pain, and so they're trying to cheer you up? Any, anybody? H- how did it work? It never works. This, and so this seems unreasonable. It seems, at the surface, unreasonable. Many of you have, have heard, at least from my preaching, um, have used my marriage and, and, and Stacy's battle with Lyme disease as illustrations over the years. For those of you that don't know, uh, the year I entered ministry in 1998 was the year Stacy got sick. And she was undiagnosed for six years. It wasn't until 2004 when a doctor was able to say, you have Lyme disease, and she began to become, was able to get treatment and improved greatly, but I would never say ever she's back to what she was before. And so that's been a battle for the last 20 years. But during those years when she was undiagnosed, it got really, really bad, really bad, to to the point where about six years, five and a half years into it, um, she was sleeping maybe two hours a night. And all of her extremities were, were, uh, were, felt like they were on fire. Migraine headaches, intestinal problems. You, it, if, if there could be something wrong, it was wrong. And there was no sleep at night. And, and so she would, uh, she would just... She would just be, and as, as, as evening approached and it got closer and closer to bedtime, her anxiety level would go up because she was afraid she wasn't going to be, because she couldn't sleep. And so there were times when I would, I would read the Psalms with her at night and I would pray over her and I would keep a prayer vigil and I would just be in the other room or in a chair next to her and I would just be praying as she's trying to sleep. Let me tell you what I never did ever in the history of all of this. I never read James chapter 1, verse 2. Stacy, you need to count this all joy, sweetheart. How many of you would say you're the stupidest man ever if you ever did that? Any of you? But it's holy writ, is it not? No, James is not saying that when someone's in intense pain, you need to tell them to be happy. That's not what he's conveying. He's saying you need to count it all joy. When Jesus was on the cross, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That doesn't mean he enjoyed the cross. That's not what it means. It means he endured the cross because of a future joy. And he was able to cognitively grab a hold of that while he was on the cross. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please do not misread James' intent here to tell you that you just need to put on a happy face as you suffer. That's not what the apostle's saying. What is he saying? Keep reading. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now here's the second command, verse 4. The second command, he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Throw the ball to first. So much for the bumper sticker. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 48, says, 
be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The end goal of your faith, if you are in Christ, is that you be made perfect in the likeness and image of your Savior. And of course you're forgiven. (laughs) That's a part of the package. But it's not just forgiveness. We're to let steadfastness have its full effect. This means we're to yield to whatever we're experiencing so that God would, would bring this about. Let's, here, here's how Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you complete. Okay, let's just stop for a second. Who does the sanctifying? Who does it? It's God that does the sanctifying. Now, we're not passive. We are to let, as James says, steadfastness have its full effect. You have to yield You have to, this is us allowing God to use our trials, our tribulation in every circumstance to produce its full effect. But we have to yield. We have to let it happen. But it's God is the one who brings about the fruit. He's the one who brings about the sanctify you completely. That means to make you holy, completely holy, perfect. This is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Just in case you were, you're not, you're questioning who does this, who does it? He will surely do it. This is God's work. Our sanctification, our being made perfect is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, we're not passive. We have to yield to this process. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, i.e. these trials, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now how did this verse make its way into the sermons? Last week, Stacy and I are celebrating our 33rd uh, year of marriage, and, and we drove down to Kansas City, and we were listening to a Tim Keller sermon on this text. So Stacy chose this, and she popped it in, and, or popped it in. I'm thinking old school cassette. It wasn't an old, she turned her iPhone on and started playing Tim Keller, and this is the sermon. We're listening to this text. We're listening to this text, and, and we're on our way down to Kansas City to les, listen to a Jackson Brown concert because we're old, and and eat barbecue. And Stacy says, when we get there, uh, for the conversation for dinner, for the conversation for dinner, uh, be prepared to share five of your sweetest memories from 33 years of marriage. I'll share mine, you share yours. And so I got four and a half hours to think about memories. So I'm thinking and and so we get to the barbecue place, and, and, and we're talking, and, and both of us thought of the same funny incident, which is not going to be a sermon illustration. Uh, funny, but it's not going to make the sermon illustration. Uh, and, and that was one of the top, top five for both of us. And then both of us, two of the five, two to three of the other five, all had to do with intensely painful memories. And Stacy said, one of my sweetest memories is when you would stay up and pray over me when I was in pain. 
For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me tell you what that does not mean. My eyes are sweating. I'm not crying. I'm working out spiritually. That's what's going on right now. This does not mean that heaven is a consolation for all that you've gone through in your life and all that you will go through in this life. That is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, Brooks and Cece, I know you've suffered, and because you've suffered, I'm going to give you this, and it's going to make up for everything that you went through. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the gospel teaches. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to use the very thing that caused you pain and misery to bring about a weight of glory in your life. And when you see that, it will be a sweet savor and taste in your mouth. The gall of bitterness you drank 20 years ago will be sweet wine because of the Holy Spirit and what he does with suffering. That's why James says to count it all joy. That's not anything you order on the front end. You sit down in life and say, I'll have Lyme disease, please, untreated, suffering for, who who orders that? No one. James does not expect you to, to be giddy about your pain. That's not reasonable. What he does expect is that you look at it through the lens of the cross and recognize that God is good and he is in control. But what do we need to get there? Because that's hard. That's hard. We need wisdom. Let's take a look at what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. Okay, so what we need to, to get to that place where we can count it all joy consistently, we need wisdom. But let's take a look at a couple things that wisdom is not. First of all, wisdom is not intelligence. He's not saying you need a high IQ. There's, there's nothing more common than foolish educated people. There's no correlation between IQ and wisdom. So that, Paul's, Paul, James is not saying, be smart. Some of us, some of you, have very high IQs. Some of us don't. But we can all be wise. So it's not intelligence. Here's something else wisdom is not. Wisdom is not the ability to see a circumstance, to see a trial, and know how God is going to use it. That's not wisdom. James is not saying, hey, you're going through this trial. You need to ask God wisdom uh, for wisdom, and then he'll tell you exactly what he's going to do with that so you know on the front end what he's going to do. That's not what he's saying. Was Job wise? What do you think? Yeah, Job was really wise. Did Job ever, on this side of eternity before he died, know why he suffered what he suffered? No. That's not what wisdom is. It's not intelligence, and it's not the ability to see what God is going to do with the trials and tribulations you're going through. 
So what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to act rightly in any circumstance. It's to know what to do. It's to know how to react. It's to, it's to act righteously all the time. Whatever you face, the wise person is obedient and knows how to respond to said circumstance. That's what wisdom is. That's what wisdom is. Now, the enemy of wisdom is, is right there in verse 8. Double-mindedness. So here's, and James is going to get to this all throughout the epistle. But this is really common. This is really common. You have people who have an intellectual basis for their faith, the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ. And so to be double-minded is to be able to say on the one hand, yes, I've trusted Jesus. He is my Savior. He is all-wise. He is all-knowing. God is good, and He is good all the time. He is loving. He knows what is best for me. God works all things for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. You can quote Scripture left and right, and you know all of those things. You know God's ways, and then when the trial and the tribulation and the test comes, you say, yeah, but I know Him, and I trust Him, but my way involves less pain and more comfort. So we willingly choose to reject what we know we ought to do, and we do what we want to do in order to avoid pain and gain pleasure. That's, that's, a, that's a double-minded person. And Paul describes this person. He says, if you're asking for wisdom, it's not going to happen. You're going to be like a wave tossed about. What, whichever way the wind blows is the direction you're going. Now, intellectually, on the one hand, you're professing Christ. On the other hand, you're not living in accordance with what you profess. That's double-mindedness. He gives us a case study here. The, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the way, in the midst of his pursuits. In any context, let the rich man, it says, uh, the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation. So those are trials. The loss of income, the loss of wealth to become financially destitute when you are riding on top of the world financially, that's a test, that's a trial. The gaining of wealth is a test and a trial. To, To be at one time impoverished, and then all of a sudden you come, into, you come into fortune. Both of those are trials. And in each case, the rich becoming poor or the poor becoming rich, they have a decision to make, and that is, am I going to respond in righteousness? What happens to the double-minded is the double-minded, if they're poor, says, I'm poor and I can't be happy unless I'm rich. Therefore, they begin to do things and act in such a way which is no longer righteous. And the rich, in their prosperity, knows that they ought to be generous, they ought to be just, they ought to be all these things, but they fear losing wealth, and so they act unjustly and unrighteously to gain and keep that wealth. Both are acting foolishly. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, regardless of the trial. Could be physical calamity, could be an illness, could be financial ruin. It could be you fall into wealth and prosperity. Regardless of the trial, 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, endures under that trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, and he cannot, he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. We, we have a goal of getting through James in the entire summer. So I'm just full conviction mode. If I had my way, what I'm preaching in one evening is four separate sermons. So I'm not doing this text as justice as I would like. But trials and temptations, trials and temptations look the same. It just depends on the perspective. Who tempts? Satan tempts. Who tests? God tests. When the sun comes out and you have clay and you have wax under the same sun, it bakes and hardens the clay and it melts the wax. Satan would use whatever you're going through, whatever pain, whatever pleasure, he would use that as a source of temptation to cause you, to lure you, to entice you that you might not walk in righteousness. God will allow that very same heat to melt your heart and test what your faith is really made of, that you might be proved in righteousness and grow in righteousness. It's the same circumstance. But God does not tempt anyone. He will allow you to be tested. You say, well, that's just semantics. No, it's not. It's not semantics. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be what? Tested. And who did he meet in the wilderness? Satan. And what did Satan do? Tempt him. You say, well, it's the same circumstance. Yes, it is. But God's purpose for that testing was different than Satan's purpose. You can see why this is four messages, but now we're moving on. So let's, let's quickly come, quickly, like I do anything quickly. Let's attempt to land the plane and answer the question, how do I get this wisdom? Okay, I know that I need it. I know that I need it. So the outcome of my faith is sanctification, complete. Recognizing that that's not going to happen until I'm with Jesus in glory, but it's progressively going, I'm going to grow in that, I'm moving in that, traje that trajectory, right? So I need wisdom. So I know what I need, but how do I get it? Where do I get it? Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, what's the word? Gift. Every good gift and perfect gift, twice we've seen the word gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This wisdom that you and I need comes from the object of our faith, which is God. He generously gives to all without finding fault. He's, it's, it's, we, he will give it. We just have to receive it by faith. Now, let's keep reading. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, now, this is where we're going we're gonna to end it here. The object of our faith is God, but he gives us something very specific there in verse 18. He brought us, what were we brought forth by? The word of truth. 
the word of truth. James is different than Paul. You probably knew this, right? When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he takes 11 chapters to explicitly lay out what the word of truth is, the gospel. James, writing to these Jewish Christians who were in Jerusalem that he had been teaching, he and Peter and the rest of the apostles, for, for, for all those months in the early days, he assumes they already know what the gospel is. Word of truth is the gospel. You and I can become wise, can, can let steadfastness have its full effect only if and when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. All those times that Stacy and I, and she's gone through her physical suffering, and I've stood by helplessly, unable to do anything, the only thing that gave us sanity, the only thing that gave us hope, and the only thing that gives us hope today is the recognition that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. And that he is going to come back, and he's going to make all things new. And he's going to take this light, momentary affliction, and he's going to work it into a weight of glory. How do I know that? Because the tomb is empty. That's the only reason I know that to be true. I don't have a crystal ball that I can look into the future. I don't know how he's using every trial and every tribulation today. But I know how he used the cross. I know what he did when the greatest injustice to the most holy and righteous human being ever occurred. And I know how James responded when he connected the dots. Correct that. When the Holy Spirit connected the dots and he saw his resurrected brother. James the unbeliever became James the church leader who on his death was was asked to recant his faith in his resurrected Christ and he chose to be stoned instead. And now he's writing these Christians and he's saying, remain steadfast on the basis of my Lord and Savior's conquering of sin and death because he will return soon. But let steadfastness have its work until then. Let it have its full effect. And yes, it'll hurt. It'll hurt. But embrace the risen Christ. Some, of, some people, I, th- I think when they hear that kind of presentation of the gospel, they think that's the worst presentation of the gospel ever. Brooks, do you hear yourself? You're inviting people to follow Jesus so they can suffer and die. I don't want to ruin anyone's night, but do you realize if you don't trust Jesus and you don't follow him, you're still going to suffer and then die? You don't get to escape suffering or death. You do get to decide how God is going to use that. You get to decide, is he going to use that heat of the sun to soften and melt your heart? Or are you going to refuse to let steadfastness have its full effect? And are you going to allow that suffering that you are going to go through or you're in the midst of right now 
to harden your heart like granite. In a room of more than 50 people, there are always people that are going through very similar trials. Not the same trials, but very similar trials. And one will be drawn closer to God and the other will run from him in bitterness and hardness of heart. It's the same, it's the same suffering. What's the difference? The one has their eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and the other's just bitter because they're suffering. You're going to suffer. Look to the one who suffered on your behalf and let him have his work in your heart. And I need to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you that you endured suffering, that you did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but you humbled yourself and took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Father, there are, there are men and women here, young people and old people, and they're all in some degree going through some trial or they've just come out of a trial or they're gonna go into one and it hurts. And Lord, we don't wanna glibly just tell one another, well, suck it up, count it joy. But we do wanna understand what you are gonna produce in that so that we can endure and so that we can allow steadfastness to have its full effect. God, we can't do that apart from the Spirit. And we thank you that the Word of God says that that's your work to bring about that fruit. And it's our job to simply just trust. So help us to trust Jesus for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.